You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right. First up, do you believe that Adam and Eve were saved? Yes. Okay. Go me to continue? <laughs> if you feel like you need to. Um, yes. Uh, let me get the Bible. Okay. It's always helpful to look at the Bible, isn't it? So um, I'll get the one on, uh, on here. Uh, we need to look at um, Genesis chapter 4. And I will briefly mention this tomorrow during the service. If any of you... Uh, do, are still in the area tomorrow and don't have another local church to go to, you come to this one, okay? You've got a great pastor here, and what's more, tomorrow I'll be preaching. So, um, okay, so in uh, Genesis chapter 4, beginning of Genesis chapter 4, um, man had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. It's quite useful looking at the New American Standard Bible because the word, the phrase the help of is in italics. That means it's not a translation of the Hebrew. It means that it's uh, something they've added in to try and help us understand it. So it's perfectly possible that that means I've gotten a man, the Lord. Hmm, what do I mean about that? Well, God had already promised to send the seed of the woman. God had already promised Adam and Eve to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head while uh, he bruises his heel. And then Eve has a baby called Cain. Well, the word Cain means gotten. So we've got a pun here. I have gotten a man called Ke- called gotten with the, help, with, with the help of the Lord, but it may mean I've gotten a man of the Lord. Some of us have high ambitions for our children. Eve's ambition was the highest. She believed that there was going to be a savior coming, the seed of the woman. She believed that, and therefore I believe she was saved. And since Adam would have been with her, I would, I would, I'm just guessing that he would have believed this too. After all, uh, he knew he had sinned. So there would be the excuses beforehand. I think this possibly is an indication that they were saved. Unfortunately, they mistook their own son for the Messiah. However, a few years later, they found out that Cain was not the Messiah. There was someone still to come who was eventually going to be the descendant of uh, another of their sons called Seth. How would you answer an atheist who asks, who created God? Uh, it's an illogical question. There's no point in answering lo- illogical questions. Uh, the word God refers to the supreme being. So you can't have su- someone making a supreme being. It's illogical. Uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it doesn't make, a, 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 doesn't make sense to say someone made God. It's, uh, it's against basically the use of language. So it's just an excuse. Not every, not every question is, uh, deserves an answer, you know. And that is a question that doesn't basically deserve an answer. Because uh, by the laws of English, the question simply doesn't make sense. Can the age of the earth be proved or refute? Can, can the age of the earth prove or refute the idea of global warming? The, can the age of the earth prove or refute global warming? No, it's not got any connection with that. I can refute global warming. Not by the age of the earth, but it's still there in Genesis, and it's very important to look at that. Global warming teaches that uh, human activity is going to destroy the weather patterns of the world. 
And yet God says in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now I can go into all the science and I do an entire talk on the subject of climate change and global warming and show how what's being talked about that is complete and utter nonsense and unscientific nonsense at that. But let's start with that scripture. Clearly, global warming cannot happen because God has told us it will not. And again, we go down to, are you going to believe God or are you going to start worrying over what unscientific people in the world say? doesn't matter that your science teachers in high school may be teaching you that all the time at the moment. Scripture tells you something different. Let's rely on what Scripture says. doesn't mean there's nothing to worry about. There's a lot of stuff to worry about in Scripture. And anyone who's not saved does need to worry and does need to start and need to come to Jesus. But God has not given us uh, a spirit of fear because he sent us his Son to save us from our sins. And he's told us, he's given us promises which are true. If God could break this promise then God could break the promise of salvation. And he's not going to do that. And he's not going to break this promise. These weather patterns will not cease and while the earth is in existence. The promise, and I was just adding a comment to this, the the, the, uh, panic over climate change is completely consistent with those who believe in evolution and that everything that we have acquired and everything that we are today is just an accumulation of one long series of accidents that have been very very beneficial or benevolent toward us, one accident, one great accident after another that has resulted in us. If you believe that, then of course you would also believe that any one accident or any one bad decision could also turn the whole thing around and head the other direction. Yeah, I mean, there's so many other things that can be said on that. That's absolutely right. God has also given us dominion over this world. And yet climate change uh, alarmists tell us that we shouldn't have dominion over the world. We're just one species on the planet. So it's completely unbiblical for a start. God has given us dominion over this world. And you know what? He's given us resources. And he's given us resources to use. And I've heard certain green uh, uh, fanatics saying, that coal that's in the ground, the moral thing to do is to leave the coal in the ground. No, it isn't. God has given us that coal. And if we turn our nose up at it and despise it, we are despising the gifts that God has given us. And he's given us dominion and told us to exploit that. He's given us coal to use. Uh, the, The fact that we are preventing people in various poor countries in the world from using coal is, in my opinion, not only unbiblical, but immoral by any standard, because we are forcing them to stay in poverty, saying you can't use the reserves of coal and oil you have. You're going to have to put up windmills that don't work very well in your country, or solar power that doesn't work at night. Have you noticed that? Solar power doesn't work at night. And we're trying to tell them those things, to use expensive forms of energy after we benefit benefited from the use of coal and oil for hundreds of years to develop our technology as it is. And instead, we want to keep them in poverty and keep them having, having to exist by handouts from Western countries instead of allowing them to exploit the resources that God gave them because God has given us dominion over this world. It does matter, and there is a biblical case for using fossil fuels and for opposing what the climate change alarmists tell us. Why is there a lot of radon exposure in Idaho? Do you know anything about that? Why is there a lot of radon exposure 
uh, presumably because there's a lot of granite in Idaho, I would imagine. I know we get, I don't know much about the geology of Idaho. I do know they get a lot of radon exposure in Cornwall because there's a lot of granite there. Uh, granite contains a certain amount of uranium-238 and part of the decay cycle produces radon, radon gas, which is itself radioactive. So I imagine that's probably it, but I don't know for sure. Are you going to talk about Berman's? About Barrowman's? Mm -hmm. I can talk about Barrowman's, yeah. Not for too long, but just... I would maintain that foxes have developed from wolves. Foxes are part of the dog family, as are dogs, obviously, and wolves. How many lions did Noah take on the ark? Somebody told me that I know I took two lions on the ark. Is that right? Do you all agree with that? <laughs> How many tigers did Noah take on the ark? Did he take two tigers? Some are nodding, some are not sure. Noah took no lions on the ark and no tigers on the ark. Why? Because they've developed from the cats that Noah took on the ark. And I don't mean little pet pussy cats. I mean... Something in the cat family that would probably have been similar to a saber-toothed cat, probably. And all the various other species of cats have developed. Hold on a minute, you don't believe in evolution, do you? No, that's not evolution. Species develop all the time from a common gene pool. And every so often, some of them lose their genes as they're passed down from generation uh, because they're in a particular environment or a particular locality. And species develop. So all the species of cats in the world are descended from two cats that Noah took on the ark by a process not of evolution, but a process of speciation. But those cats did not develop from wolves. What developed from wolves? Foxes, dogs, and similar creatures to that. That's, uh, that's what developed from wolves. So Noah would have taken two wolf-like animals on the ark. And the others have developed from that. Now, how do we understand that? Don't, don't we believe that Noah took two of every species? No, it doesn't say that. It says Noah took two of every kind on the ark. Within the kinds, you can develop other animals. God created kinds that could breed according to their kind. Kinds of plants, kinds of animals, kinds of sea creatures. The Hebrew word for kind is min. M-I-N is the way we transliterate it. The Hebrew word for created is bara. So we have put those two together to make our own creationist scientific term, baramin. So a baramin is our technical term to describe a created kind. So you'll get that in creationist textbooks, and I mention it in my books, but you won't get it in uh, evolutionary textbooks. You won't get it in your high school textbooks. Okay? There's a whole science to go with it, baraminology, because after all, there's research to be done. I've said that there are created kinds, but we don't know everything about those created kinds. I can't be absolutely sure. There was a time that, for example, that people thought that hyenas must have been part of the dog-created kind. Then they changed their minds and said, no, actually it's got more in common with cats, so it's probably part of the cat-created kind instead. Nowadays, we think it's a separate created kind of its own, not related to either of them. But the, the science of the created kind hasn't changed. It's just that we've changed our minds on what they were. 
Now, you might say, well, so evolutionism in saying certain things like that, is there a direct relationship between what a baromin is and what the evolutionary ca- uh, uh, classification is? I'm afraid there isn't, but there nearly is. There nearly is. We're nearly talking the same thing, not quite. So you may have heard about the various different classifications, the tax, biological taxonomies. Have you heard about these? Where you've got orders and suborders and families and so on. Well, the baromin is almost always, not quite always, but almost always the same level as the evolutionary family. So you've got a dog family. That is a dog baromin. You've got a cat family. That is a cat baromin. And in most cases, almost every case of all plants and animals, it's the same. However, there are some exceptions, and I'll just mention briefly those exceptions just to show you uh, that it does work. For example, there's a pig family and there's a peccary family that the evolutionists talk about. As creationists, we think they're part of the same baromin. So in that case, we will have a pig, a pig baromin, which is at the order level above the family. So we think that's the baromin. And sometimes it goes the other way around, where the baromin is the subfamily or, or the genus. For example, with elephants, there's an elephant genus, but we think that is the baromin. Uh, you've got uh, the ungulate um, family, but we think that uh, the caprini um, subfamily, which comprises of sheep and goats, is not the same baromin as the cattle baromin. Cattle is at the subfamily level, and so is the caprini, which is sheep and goats, and they are part of the ungulate family. But we don't think all ungulates are the same baromin. We think that the, that the, uh, that the uh, subfamily there is the baromin level. But most animals, almost every other animal you can mention, it's the family level that's the same as the baromin. So the, there's a certain amount of research already done for us there, but we need to do more research to work out where the boundaries are. Folks at Answers in Genesis have been doing this. If you look at the Answers Research Journal, which is a free, peer-reviewed scientific journal online, you'll find a number of papers on there about the various kinds that must have been on the ark, all edited by Dr. Jean Leitner and her team. And they've published what they think were all the mammals, the land mammals on the ark. They've published what they think must have been all the birds on the ark and what they think must have been all the amphibians. They're only partway through reptiles, but there is research going on. What they have worked out so far is that they think there were probably about, at the time of the flood, probably about 2,600 baromins of land and flying animals uh, uh, that had the breath of uh, life in them, in other words, that have lungs and can breathe air. Those are what would have been on the ark, which means that the ark would have had to accommodate fi- about 5,200 animals. A little bit more because some clean animals, there would have been seven pairs instead of just one pair. So definitely no more than 5,500 animals in total. Big animals and small animals, and the average size is the size of a sheep. So the ark had to be big enough to hold 5,500 sheep. And you could easily fit those on just one of the three decks. So there we go. That's, so that's how we talk about baromins. You suggested the earth is not the center of the universe. Why not, and what is? I don't know what the center of the universe is, but there's no reason to suppose it is, except in the sense that the earth definitely is the center of the universe as far as God's plan is concerned. God made the earth before he made anything else. So the earth is special. In Isaiah, we read that God made the earth to be inhabited. The earth is the only planet, therefore, on which there is life. 
not just because there's no evolution. And the scientific argument is that we don't believe the theory of evolution, therefore life cannot have evolved elsewhere. The biblical argument is that God has made the earth first, it's unique, before the sun, moon, and stars, and, uh, the, and therefore other planets, before any of those. And God made the earth to be the only place to be inhabited, the, the only place to have any life. So the earth is the center of the universe as far as those plans are concerned. But when you're talking about the mechanism of one thing orbiting another, there's no reason why God shouldn't have made it so the earth orbits the sun, even though the sun was made three days after the earth. I don't have any problem with that. The, the way we look at the things today, we can see that the earth orbits the sun. We can see that our sun in the galaxy is rotating uh, with the galaxy. We can see all those things happen. So it's not at the physical center of the universe, but it is, however, the spiritual center of the universe. And I hope that makes sense. You commented earlier that the universe cannot be more than a million years old because if it were older than that, we would not see spiral galaxies. Could you elaborate on this argument a bit more? And can it avoid the hourglass fallacy? If, uh, if um, the galaxies are rotating, which they are, then they're not going to stay as spirals. You know, just because of the sheer angular momentum, which is going to throw stars towards the outside and break the spiral pattern. And if you do computer models with the current rate of rotation, you can't get more than a million years before the spiral shape has disappeared. That's all I was saying. And by the way, that million years is just that process. It is an upper bound, and all the arguments that I would use are upper bounds. I am not saying that the universe is a million years old. I'm saying it's clearly no more than that. It could, however, be considerably less than that. It could, for instance, be 6,000 years, which is what the Bible teaches. It's consistent with the biblical position. There are hundreds and hundreds of arguments we're going to like that. I didn't mention comets yesterday when I mentioned that. Every time a comet goes around the sun, it loses some of its material. So by the rate of loss of material, we can show that it is not possible for any comet to be more than 100,000 years old. That, again, does not mean that the, that the solar system is 100,000 years old. It's telling me that it's not possible for comets to exist longer than that. Therefore, they must be no more than that. They could, of course, be a lot less than that. They could, for example, be just 6,000 years. Uh, you could go on and on with examples like that and keep going. That's the only reason I was making the arguments, to show that uh, not every... Uh, physical pro or chemical process gives you the millions and billions of years. And in fact, the overwhelming majority of them do not work with millions and billions of years. All right, let's uh, end with a couple of questions about Mount St. Helens. Do you think researchers will ex excavate, excavate fossils from 1980 eruption of elk and other wildlife? Is it possible they would have fossilized in the past 40 years? It's possible, but, uh, you know, they won't let anyone go and dig there. So at the moment, we're not going to find that. It's possible. I don't know. I just can't speculate, really. How high up did the blast go, Mount St. Helens? Um, the, well, the, the plume, the cloud plume, went up 15 miles into the atmosphere. And uh, I was going to tell a little story before I ask you to finish with uh, an anecdote that you told us on the tour. Yes. Our tour that we took with Paul ended at the Johnson Ridge Observatory or Interpretive Center there. And um, you kind of walk through and you get a lot of the information that he shared in the session on Mount St. Helens. And then you end with a theater production uh, that kind of has – is that the same video that was in the theater production that you used, that you played in that session? Um, it's similar. It's not the quite animated? the same. Yeah. Okay. It, it, has, it incorporates a video production like that. I'm not going to spoil the ending of that in case you ever go to that interpretive center. But afterwards, you, we walked out and we stood at the railing where some of those pictures were taken that Paul shared. And you can look across that. There's a five miles across mm -hmm. to the mountain. And 
that seemed like a long ways away for a blast to be able to kill somebody sitting on that, that ridge. And then when you're standing there looking at the mountain, you can turn around 180 degrees and look at the mountain behind you, which is a mile and a half, a mile away, something like that. And you can still see the standing timber on there that was wiped out by the blast. All the way back there, the devastation went. So it wasn't just that it wiped out at that five-mile mark, but behind you even, it, it wiped them out. So uh, Paul's going to close with a story about yeah. the man who was up there. When, when I take people around the Hummocks Trail before I even get them up to the Johnston Ridge Observatory, there's an information board, the last information board that I'll come to when I take people around the, the uh, Hummocks, talks about a man called um, Har- Harry Glicken. Now, Harry Glicken researched the hummocks and did what must sound like the most boring piece of research possible. He investigated every part of the hummocks and worked out where basically every stone in the hummocks trail had come from inside the volcano. That's how he got his PhD in the mid-1980s. And it's a long, boring, but very, very impressive piece of research. And that tells us something about how the landslide happened and so on, which is very important. But then the information board doesn't tell you anything else about Harry Glicken. So I like to tell people a little bit more about him. Harry Glicken knew a lot about Mount St. Helens. He was very familiar with it. He had a close affinity with the mountain because in 1980, he had been part of, he was a young graduate student. 22 years of age in 1980, and he was a young graduate student, uh, and he came with the team of uh, older geologists to Mount St. Helens to study the eruption, and they were waiting for the eruption to happen. Well, they knew that, it, you know, there'd been a lot of minor eruptions and rumblings, so they knew something was going to happen, so they put a trailer on what is now known as Johnston Ridge, five miles north of the volcano, so that they could watch that. And I told you about that earlier this day, today, didn't I? I told you about how they were expecting the eruption to go upwards and how they watched that. Well, clearly, they had to staff that trailer, so all the geologists took it in turns to be in that trailer. They all took it in turns. Everyone had to take a turn, including young Harry. But like, like a lot of students, he had got himself behind with his coursework. And one day, it was going to be his turn to be in the trailer. But he was a long way behind with his coursework. And the next week, he had a Viva Voce exam at the university to defend his uh, thesis and uh, uh, as part of his uh, studies. And so he thought he'd better mention this, how he had this problem. How could he be in the trailer and study for his, um, uh, for his Viva Voce the next day? So he mentioned this to his mentor, who was called Dr. David Johnston. And uh, David Johnston said, don't worry about it. You stay back and do your, um, your research, and uh, I'll take your turn in the trailer. And the next day, the mountain blew, and David Johnston was killed. There you go. What a sad story. And yet some people have mentioned to me, well, it's a little bit like, isn't it? You know, Jesus died for our sins. David Johnston gave his life for Harry Glicken. Well, not really. David Johnston didn't know he was going to give his life for Harry Glicken, did he? He didn't know. So it's not quite the same because we've got a Savior who knew exactly what he was doing because the, uh, the idea that Jesus would uh, be, have, uh, be bruised by Satan was prophesied right after the very first sin and this and these things were even determined before the, cre- uh, the before the creation of the world well that might that is not the end of the story of harry glicken 
1980, David Johnston became the first American volcanologist to be killed in an eruption. Ten years later, Harry Glicken became the second. He and a team were studying a, a volcano in Japan when uh, Harry fell into the crater and was burnt to death. Very sad. Again, this is not a happy story, but there's an important point to make from it. The thing is that many of his teams said that he jumped in. They say he basically committed suicide. Why? This was after 10 years of depression and guilt, believing that he was the man who should have died on the ridge that was now named after his mentor. And he couldn't live with that. So it is a depressing story, but it's a true story, and I think it's important that you know it, because that's probably a little bit more um, pertinent to what the gospel is all about. If somebody gives the life for you without knowing that they're doing it, without purpose, that does nothing for guilt or for sin or anything. Jesus Christ gave his life knowingly, prophesied, planned before the creation of the world for our sins, and therefore he takes away all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin and makes us completely right with the Father when we repent and we trust in Him. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.